Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms, conscious commentary on business and society. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. This podcast is designed to give the Academy's outlook on the economic, political, and ecological factors that affect our listeners. As always, we welcome your feedback and questions. Send your thoughts to info at worldbusiness.org. This is our second show of 2014 and comes in the midst of some pretty wild weather. It feels like we're, we say this almost every month, but the new normal is anything but. We'll discuss the short-term and long-term ramifications of our rapidly destabilizing climate and how you can work to protect yourself and help shift the world away from climate disaster. The Academy is a leading voice in the push for a shift to a holistic and robust planetary fuel system that could make 100% renewable carbon-free energy a reality using today's existing technology. We'll get into the details later in the show. Also, we're going to discuss the Obamacare enrollment numbers and make a revision to our prediction for the U.S. GDP growth this year. But first, Ronaldo, let's talk about the shift that we're seeing in Congress. By today's standards, there's been a flurry of legislative activity. Two whole bills of consequence made it through the partisan gridlock. Those bills were the Farm Bill and a bill just this week to raise the nation's borrowing limit. What do you see happening in the short term here, Ronaldo? Uh, good morning, Matt, and uh, hello to all of our listeners. It's uh, an interesting day to be doing this show, uh, as you just alluded to, at uh, Atlanta having a, the second day of an ice storm. Two weeks ago it had one that closed the entire town. Uh, the East Coast under incredible amount of snow. And I do want to come back to this topic uh, because it's really an important one, uh, which is now beginning to get mainstream attention and I think it's really important. But before I do that, let's, of course, turn to the Congress. I, I think what happened this week in the Congress was a, um, an extraordinary turn of events. And the reason is what John Boehner finally did is he finally decided, and I think it's because the conservative, traditional conservative Republican Party, not as a distinguished from the Tea Party, which I don't consider traditional or even conservative. I consider it, you know, fringe. The, the Republican Party realized that it had to take the party back. So there's a fight now for the for the control of the Democrat for the Republican Party. We've been talking about that on this show for several shows in a row now. And yeah. what's finally happened is that Boehner realized he had to go with the traditional moneyed conservative interests of the Republican Party, and and buck the chances of being primaried in his own district by the Tea Party. He did it by literally passing a clean debt ceiling bill, which I'm just delighted with because a clean debt ceiling bill means that he tried to get it one through, couldn't get it through with, with all kinds of silly things on it, like the Exxon, with the uh, XL pipeline. He tried to do something with military stuff. But when he realized that his own caucus wouldn't support him in getting a bill through, even with his amendments, he turned to the Democrats, put a clean bill through, it went through the Senate, and they all got out of town on time to avoid this crushing snowstorm. So we have the ice and snowstorm in Washington probably to thank for this. But I think the one other <laughs> thing was at play. 
you know, and that's the, yeah, because they all want to go home for a 10-day vacation. And they were afraid if they waited another day or two, they'd get locked, which they would have gotten trapped because of the closure of airports. So the Congress was motivated to get home, and that's why they acted promptly and didn't wow. drag their feet, which yeah. is a sorry statement on the, the state of our politics. But here's the other thing that I want people to focus on. This is really important. This is, will hit you in your paycheck eventually. What happened here is that the Republican Party concluded, and I think Wall Street was behind this, that they, we couldn't screw around, goof off for the next two weeks and threaten the closure, which wasn't going to come anyway because there's no way they could close the government again without taking horrific losses at the polls in 2014. So there's a new maturity in the Republican Party, and Boehner said so as much, said as much so in his press conference, where he basically said, look, without the, the magic number 221, we don't get anything done here, so we went for something we get with 221 votes, and the way he got it was overwhelmingly Democrats and a handful of Republicans. Then you, in the Senate, you had this uh, interesting byplay where Senator Rubio stood up and tried to block it and, and called for a um, basically a, a filibuster and demanding that 60 votes be used to close off his, uh, his discussion. Uh, when that appeared to be the case, he was trying to force Republican senators to come down on one side of the line or the other, and he thought that they might be afraid of coming down in favor of the debt ceiling being raised. However, Mitch McConnell, up in a very tough re-election battle in uh, Kentucky, together with his number two guy, Cronin, decided we can't afford to take this risk. We don't want to distract people from what we're trying to aim them at in this election and the by-elections. So we're going to put this thing through quickly. And in less than one hour, the Senate Republicans crossed over the line, 60 votes plus happened, and bang, it was passed. Now, that's the way government's supposed to work when it's rational. And so if we are, in fact, in a rational situation, it tells me some very good things about the economy in 2014. Do you want me to segue to that, Matt, or should we stay here with this political commentary? Let's put a pin on that one for a second, because I think that the other factor that we just talked about that's going into our uh, GDP outlook is the, the storm that you talked about and the climate chaos that we've been seeing. Um, I'd like to hear some of your thoughts about the degeneration of the jet stream and uh, what you think the relationship is of the recent weather to climate change. Great. Okay, so put in the plus comment column on the economy for 2014. In, in November and December, we said we thought the economy was going to uptick and we explained why, and one of the reasons was I thought there would not be another debt ceiling crisis. In other words, the Congress would quit shooting itself in the foot, which would be like releasing a brake on, on a car that's trying to roll downhill but it's being braked all the time. So that tells me that there's a plus towards economic growth, which just happened yesterday, and the better our politics functions, the, more, the stronger that plus will be. Um, parenthetically, one of the reasons I think the Republicans are doing this is that several of their governors are up for re-election, like Walker of Minnesota, who <coughs> want to be running on a stronger economy. So the beneficiary this time isn't seen as just the Democrats if the economy gets stronger. They're looking at 37 state houses, Republican-controlled state houses, and they're trying to keep that number as high as possible, and they want people like Walker to be able to go into this by-year election and get re-elected with a stronger economy. So they're seeing, hmm, let's let the economy grow a little bit in 2014. It'll help the Democrats, but it'll also help Republicans being re-elected at the gubernatorial level. Now let's combine that with the comment you just asked about, the weather. We explained on this show a month or two ago that the reason for the polar vortex, so-called, which is this giant spinning mass of cold Arctic air that drops – 
into the lower United States and is causing all the havoc this year. We explained that that was a direct result of basically the collapse of the jet stream. And, and, and what we said was, and, and this is going to go back about two years now, but a little over two years ago, I said, we started mentioning on this show the erratic nature of the jet stream, that it was starting to move around in, in a non-stabilized, normalized pattern. And that erratic motion of the jet stream, I said at the time a couple of years ago, when you start messing with the jet stream, you have messed with the fundamental air pattern of the planet. And clearly it was climate change related. So what's happened is the heating of the Arctic has gotten so pronounced that it's created a weakening of the normal path of cold, hot, moist, and dry air as it flows around the Earth, spun by the Coriolis effect because the Earth is a rotating mass, right? So it's, so it's going to go in the, in, in the opposite direction of the spin. I mean, in the direction of the spin. So what's happening is that jet stream, that huge amount of air that, that circles the globe, started taking weird dips a few years ago. It started dipping far further south than it did before, but it kept its V shape. What's happened this year is that the V broke. In other words, it's like a, um, like a, a girdle popped. It, the, the latex just got so thin that finally it couldn't hold the, the air in. So that cold, heavy air, which was no longer bumping up against a strong current of air called the jet stream, just came flooding south in the wintertime. And as it came down, it created huge, massive conflict with the warm air of the Gulf, which rose from the south. That right. caused the ice storms, because the cold air got so far south, together with the moisture, caused the ice storms we've been seeing, but which were legendary. It's causing you know, multiple feet of snow to be dropped in places like Boston and Maine. It, it's, it's, it's creating precisely the effect of climate change, which is highly unstable weather patterns with exaggerated peaks of cold and hot punctuated by quicker changes it's going to be 50 degrees tomorrow in atlanta today it's doing freezing rain so yeah. those kinds of transitions are characteristic as we've been saying for years on this program of climate change that's what happened and and and, and, and it will only get worse from here and it will accelerate how bad it's getting worse and as uh, cbs began reporting yesterday cbs news the heating of the Arctic this year, which will be probably the hottest it's ever been in recorded history, stands to be even hotter by next year because of what's going on. So I think it's a, a great conversation. I'd love to talk more about climate change. I want our listeners to know that I personally believe the climate change work the Academy does is second to none globally. And if our listeners would like to know more information about climate change, how it will impact likely your area of the world, what you can expect, what what will come from it, all of these factors are things that the Academy is happy to share, so write us a question. Now let me tie it to the economy where we started. So the, what's going to happen in the first two quarters of this year, for sure, is you've got lost productivity because so many people are, are out of work for so long they've got to stay at home. Um, Atlanta is, there, is another day where not one person has gone to work. You've had government shutdowns at the federal level again today. You've got government shutdowns, you've got schools being shut down, there's all sorts of shutdowns all over the country as a result of this storm that's gone from Texas all the way across the south and now all the way as high as Boston. And remember, we're now in our third, fourth week of this wacky weather. Now this weather weirding is going to cause a loss of productivity because people didn't get to work as much. There's a cost to that in GDP. A second cost is um, the fuel bills 
of the people who are used to paying a certain number of dollars per month for a typical winter's fuel bill, whether that be uh, home heating oil or propane or electricity, those bills have been skyrocketing all across the southern tier of the United States and all the way up through the northeast and the mid-Atlantic states. So what's going to happen is people are going to have to pay those bills, which is going to put a depressive effect on consumer spending. Now, when you've got a situation where the, the middle class is being pushed towards poverty and those in the lower class are being pushed below the poverty line, this richer getting rich, everybody else getting poor phenomenon is exacerbated when those people, the, roughly I'm going to say probably 80% of the population, are going to have to make spending decisions now based, well, I'll bring that to 60%, 60% of the population of America. So there's 340 million Americans. So you're talking about 60% of those people, hundreds of millions of Americans, are going to spend less because they had to spend so much on home heating, fuel oil, propane, and electricity. Now, they're not going to recover from that by the second quarter, so that will have a depressive effect on the economy. The good news is this is going to force states. Most states are now having surplus tax revenues beyond their wildest dreams. What, what they've done is they've started paying a tremendous amount of overtime to state employees to clear the roads. They're, they're basically bought all the sand and salt they can, and some municipalities and some states are completely run out, and they're trying to restock at very high prices, thereby spurring the economy. So what's going to happen is the positive of the weather storm is it's going to force spending on maintenance of public structures, roadways, facilities, maintenance of electrical lines that have snapped because of ice storms and wind storms, and additional overtime, plus it's going to force more repairs of bridges, roads, highways, etc. All of that together, netted out, means the first two quarters of the year are going to come in lower than I would have hoped. However, by the third quarter, it should be picking up again quite nicely. So I'm going to say you're going to see a, a 2% GDP growth in the first two quarters, maybe 2.25 at most. But by the third quarter, that's going to go up into the 3-plus range. And I believe that instead of seeing a 3.2, well, we, we, we always thought this was going to come in at about 2.75 to 3 or 3.25 for the year. I'm now saying it'll be the lower side of that for the year, probably closer to 2.75 than to 3.2. So I'm revising my estimate of GDP growth down, but even that downward revision is still providing for a year that's going to be a 25% at least better than it was last year and is set to continue to improve again the following year. What you're going to see now from here on out with climate change is you're going to see people start to rationally look at what is the cost of continuing to burn carbon as it's, as it's experienced by the systems and the infrastructure that we live in. And frankly, it's going to affect housing. It's going to affect every single thing you can imagine in the economy, including the damage done to housing, which will occur with the next tornado season. So, and, and, and you're, you're going to see continuing uh, problems, for example, even wholesale population relocations as water runs out in the West, literally, and as you see um, uh, the need to weatherize in a new fashion the infrastructure of the mid-Atlantic and eastern seaboard states. Yeah, it's pretty Does amazing. that cover it? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's pretty amazing the amount of uh, money that's being poured into maintaining this aging and ancient infrastructure uh, as a result of climate change and just as a result of it uh, collapsing in, in, some, in some cases and, and being old and incredibly expensive. Um, 
I think that comes to our next, or we'll talk more about the, the next infrastructure of the future that, that um, will replace this one and the new planetary fuel system uh, later on in the show. But first, I want to talk a little bit about Obamacare. Wait, before you, do that, before you do that, yeah. wait, Matt, you, know, you just said something I want to focus on because it happened in the news 10 days ago. Okay. Joe Biden took a lot of heat when he compared LaGuardia Airport as being similar to a third world country. Remember that? And then the news went into LaGuardia, and they showed with cameras how ceilings are literally collapsing in that airport. Yes, it's horrible. Joe Biden was right. Well, not only are the airports in this country badly in need of a facelift, the whole idea of moving massive numbers of people by air, look at the 5,400 flights were canceled the last time I looked at 9 o'clock this morning, just today. Thousands wow. and thousands of flights are getting canceled every time we have one of these crazy storms. Now, the loss to the airlines is obvious, but more importantly, it's telling us that the transportation system we have in this country is not the transportation system that can survive and prosper and flourish in this changed climate that we're experiencing. This should put increased pressure on rail. This should put increased pressure for um, changing our infrastructure so that people don't get gridlocked in Atlanta because they can go to work on light rail cars. But right now, that's not an option. So what we need to realize is in a, in a period of time where climate will continue to be a, a reality, and, and don't forget, this is not just the U.S. we're talking. England is underwater. The flooding in middle sections of England this year is the worst recorded in 250 years. So it's not just the U.S. that's got weather weirding. It's all over the planet. And it's going to force a reexamination of infrastructure everywhere, but particularly in the United States, where our infrastructure is probably some of the worst in the developed world. It'll be interesting if we can extend, expand that thing to our educational plants and say, you know what, our schools aren't even physically built well enough to deliver. What about what they teach? And can we start to switch in our consciousness from, a, from, a, from an economy based on the measurement of things, which we don't really do that well anymore, to an economy based on the quality of life and the quality of the ideas we create, i.e. technology? So we don't even have the measurement tools for that right now, and I believe this climate change issue is going to force us, whether we like it or not, to that question. Uh, one of the things, I'll just make a quick footnote. One of our uh, interns, uh, Kristen Kerr, just compiled for me a series of pictures that I asked her to do where she took certain major cities around the globe and showed what they look like at the new 230 feet higher um, uh, sea level because that's where sea level is going to go to, and it's going to go there within Kristen's lifetime. So she's a woman in her mid-20s. Before she's my age, or certainly around that time, she's going to see that 230-foot high sea, higher sea level. You should take a look, at if anybody wants to write into the academy, could send copies, maybe we'll even post them, Matt, of what some of those cities look like. It's stunning. And this is not what might happen in 50 years. This is what absolutely will happen unless we turn the clock back and we haven't even begun to turn it back. In fact, we're making it worse today. More carbon will be put in the air today than was put in yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a grim vision, and I, I will uh, see if we can post those to our website shortly. Another video okay. on the website is a, is, a, is a graphic demonstration of the sea ice melt, which we talked about had a direct re relationship with the jet stream which is one of the reasons the, the jet stream slowing is one of the reasons we've had such wild weather. Um, you yeah. Know, yeah. And by the way, now just before you, now you transition to Obamacare, before you do remember though, I want to, I always like to do a plus story. 
the plus is this same week, we, we, we heard the definitive expansion of a company that has pioneered and now successfully, on an economic basis, extracted carbon and used carbon to form plastic pellets that can be then made into biodegradable or non-biodegradable furniture. And why, why that's critical is when you suck carbon dioxide out of the air anywhere and pull in the carbon and you re-carbonize it or you re-plasticize it, instead of using oil, which is where plastics usually come from, if you make it in a non-biodegradable fashion, which is what I'm advocating, then it doesn't get re-released back into the air. So if we take and accelerate our economy, which we're capable of by switching to the hydrogen economy, we'll create an economic growth in, in, the, in the planet, probably, I'm going to say conservatively, at least 50 times greater economic activity than today. So you've got a $16.5 trillion global economy. Multiply that by 50. That's what you're going to have. And I'll be happy to defend that statement to anybody who wants to challenge me because a go, similar yeah. thing happened. Sorry, go ahead. Huh? No, a similar thing go happened. Ahead. We went from the Industrial Revolution from pre, you know. Um, you and I were talking about this the other day, Matt, where 200 years ago, and I haven't forgotten, we've got to get back to Obamacare, but 200 years ago, it, it, two years, if you take 1750 to 1950, let's say, so pre-Industrial Revolution to post-Industrial Revolution, in that 200 years, the value of the global economy exploded. I don't know if there's a number for it. Did you ever find a number for that, Matt? Uh, Bob Perry did some digging, and some of the GDP estimates from back in 1750 are pretty hard to define, but there is some uh, overlap that I'll show you. It's, it's in your email. Okay, I'm going to guess, just guess, I mean, and I'm going to keep doing the research, folks, so when I start with a guess, it's just a way to get me started. I'm going to guess that it's going to be a 20x at least, meaning that the economy, and, and I think that's going to prove to be conservative, the economy was 20 times bigger globally in 1950 than it was in 1750. In fact, I think 20 is too conservative. It's going to be higher than that. It is, the yeah. Same, I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it it's here. Be like, it's in orders of magnitude higher. Uh, yeah, it could be 13, like, like 100, 200 times, right? 13.3 billion versus 70, 72.6 million. Okay, so you're talking... You're talking in the hundreds of multiples. Yeah. So when I say we're going to have a 50x growth as we switch to a hydrogen economy, that turns out to be conservative too. Now, when you have that explosive positive growth from, uh, from the abundant fuel hydrogen, which you extract from renewable sources, so that you make electricity cheaper every year, not more expensive every year, you stop emitting CO2, you'll have cheap enough energy to do two things that we absolutely have to do as a, civil, as a human civilization. We have got to begin using desalinization on a massive scale. And you've got to have cheap electricity to do that from renewable sources. And number two, we've got to suck the carbon dioxide out of the air. And people can remember this number. Right now, the scientific community is pretty clear. It costs between 50, lowest case, $600, worst case, per ton, to get the carbon out of the air. I believe it's going to come in finally at around two, $250 per ton, ultimately, although I'd love to see it at 50. Whatever that price is, if the alternative is the destruction of human civilization as we know it and a sea level rise of 230 feet globally, which literally would inundate 75% of the global population, by the way, that, that change at any price is worth it. But at, at a couple hundred bucks a ton, it's downright cheap. And now we've got the technology to turn that into new plastic implements, tools, chairs, which will stay locked in that form indefinitely. 
That's the beginning of the solution for climate change. So that's, so that's really a form of geoengineering that we can now add to the other list. And we mentioned on this show the Green Chemistry Association had articulated that this was possible and had done some research on it. And now we have a, a couple of huge plants that are being opened to do precisely that. And the test cases have already run, and they're coming in very economic. So I'm excited for where we could be as a civilization if we choose to extract carbon from the air using energy from hydrogen, which captures it from renewable resources and creates a global economy that's 50 to 100 times larger than it is today, which is how we'll pay for the infrastructure. It's how we'll lift people out of poverty. Look what we did since the Industrial Revolution. It's how we will close the gap between the rich and the poor. It's not that the rich are going to get poor. It's that the poor and the middle class are going to begin to expand once again. It's how we're going to do the infrastructure. It's how we're going to change education. It's literally how we're going to save the species if we choose to go that route. And the other thing, the other conclusion, as to quote Winston Churchill or paraphrase him, is unthinkable. In other words, if we don't do that, it's unthinkable. So yeah. to me, this is the great opportunity of our uh, generation and, frankly, of the next two generations. It's also the great challenge. Well, that's a great preview of where we're going to go with the hydrogen economy conversation. I think that's really important. Um, and it, it's a complex topic, so I'm looking forward to talking more about that in about 10 minutes on this show. Uh, Ronaldo, we wanted to touch on Obamacare before we right. move on. Um, and there's been some uh, – we've seen a total number of newly insured Americans rising uh, as a result of the Affordable Care Act, sometimes called Obamacare. Um, by some estimates, the, the number of newly insured is over 14 million people as a result of this bill. Um, but there was a report from the Congressional Budget Office that says that 2 million fewer jobs will exist as a result of people's expanded access to health care. What do you think of this number, and what's the spin that you're hearing? Okay, first of all, I, for those who don't read or take the USA Today, I want to point out that the cover story of USA Today, the top third of the page is Monster Storm Shuts Down South, same topic we started with, and directly underneath it, the lead headline is Healthcare Sign-Up Surges. Um, you just gave a number. 14 million people now have insurance today because of this act. People don't realize that. And where that number comes from is not just the exchanges, but the expansion of Medicare and the expansion of CHIP. So our children, through that program, CHIP, uh, are, um, are less fortunate through Medicare expansion, and our great middle class through the exchanges are now able to get 14.4 million people are going to get health care that never got it before, of which... 3.3 million are people in the exchanges and the private plans, and that number, by the way, is getting very close to the 4 million that was projected, and we still have a month and a half to go to get that fourth million. I also noticed, uh, Matt, that the number of people um, under the younger generation, which was everyone's afraid the younger people won't sign up and therefore we'll have nothing but old people in the plans, 25% of that total number, the 3.3 million I just gave you, our young people, yeah. which is a little better than we had hoped for. So the plan is working phenomenally well. What's going to happen as a result is that the cost of health care as a percentage of GDP, which has just been, been hovering right now about 16.5%, is going to start dropping as a percentage of GDP. In other words, this lead weight we've been carrying as an economy, particularly in the United States of all places, where we have the most expensive by two health care system in the world and the worst healthcare system in the industrialized world. So we're now going to start to reduce year over year the burden. And 
the deficit, as was reported in the CBO report you just referred to that came out last week, CBO pointed out that the deficit will shrink further as a result of the Affordable Health Care Act. No question about it. By at least, um, looks at an additional $2 billion in the short term. Now, the, in the same report, they talked about the loss of a couple million jobs. And the Republican spin machine, in an attempt to try and kill this act, which it's too late, they can't kill In fact, they're crazy to run against this act now with 14 million people having benefited. But the, the, in fact, I predict that by the time the 2014 elections come around in November, people are going to be so happy that they did this Affordable Care Act that the Republicans putting all their chips on it is going to come back to haunt them. It'll, it'll backfire. Okay, what, how did those couple of million jobs come to get lost in the CBO report over the next 10 years? It wasn't because employers would stop hiring people, which is what the spin machine of the Republicans want you to think. It's because people who currently felt enslaved to their job, involuntary servitude, which was made illegal in this country at the birth of our republic, we made it illegal to do servant bondage. Up until 1776, you were allowed to be in servant bondage, and that was made illegal in the Constitution. It's no longer the law of the land. And I'm not talking about slavery. I'm talking about when people would come over from the old world and they would become what's called an indentured servant for seven years and they couldn't leave their employer no matter where the guy beat them, malfed them, mistreated them. They couldn't leave their place of employment. They were frozen. That system was so bad that even when the Continental Congress met in 1774, they said we're going to stop that system. Well, we've had indentured servitude in this country for the last 20 years because people couldn't leave their jobs if they were uninsured otherwise. So to keep their life insurance in place, which allowed them not to go bankrupt, they actually were willing... Pardon me? Their health insurance. Their health insurance, right. What did I say? Life insurance. Similar. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I meant meant health insurance. Because their health insurance was... they They didn't have the flexibility of being able to switch a job they didn't like or where they thought they weren't as productive because to do so would cost them their health insurance and if they had any kind of an illness, they'd be bankrupted. So they stayed in jobs they didn't want to be in. And the CBO, the, the Congressional Budget Office, CBO, said correctly that a couple of million people will quit their jobs who are really unhappy. My prediction, Matt, is that people who quit those jobs, a huge percentage of them will become entrepreneurs. And what they'll do is that they will start businesses because now they can afford to. One person or two can go out and start a business if they want and not be afraid of catastrophic illness. Right. In fact, it's, um, if you look at uh, new corporate formations, okay, uh, and this statistic was just released, I think, uh, yesterday. Uh, it came out in a speech by Sally uh, Krawcheck, who's the former senior executive of Bank of America, who pointed out that women are not only graduating from college and graduate school at a greater rate than men, women are starting businesses at a greater rate than men. Well, with health care now taken care of, a single woman or two can go out and start a business and be able to do that as a supplement or as the main income for their family or as a supplement and grow that business because health care no longer is a break, a B-R-A-K-E, on the economy. So I predict that this change of health care, not only will the 2 million people that the CBO is predicting will cease to be employed. That's a good thing because, you know what, even if every one of them sat on a corner afterwards, I don't think involuntary servitude is morally acceptable. I think it's bad economics. 
You don't get good productivity when people are forced to stay in jobs they hate. So releasing them out of bondage will trigger greater economic activity than anyone's had managed, and the, and the change of those 2 million jobs is a good thing the CBO was talking about. The spin machine that made it a bad thing is just a, a spin machine. Folks, keep your eyes open. Don't be tricked by an old shell game. Keep your eye on, which, you know, keep your eye on the ball here. And the ball is when you reduce the cost of health care, which is at 16.6% or 16.5% is the biggest single aspect of the domestic GDP, the depressant on it. When you change that, when you relieve that pressure, you get growth, economic growth. When you do other things, which we're going to touch on in a minute, like the hydrogen economy, you get even greater exponential growth. So are we capable today of creating a civilization that we would find to be practically heaven on earth? You bet we are. Now the question is, are we going to do it? And I say the choice is ours. We know the right information. Sorry. Another key factor, I think, in the Affordable Care Act that is leading to this change uh, is the the pre-existing condition uh, clause, which makes it illegal for insurers to prevent people from getting insurance because of pre-existing conditions. You know, that shift alone frees a lot of people I know from having to stay with jobs that they didn't love. And uh, yeah, sorry, I was going to say the other, the other factor is when people are free to leave their jobs, it also creates a pressure on employers to be more competitive in the labor market and provide better incentives for their workers. Oh, yeah, I think, I think that um, the wage pressure is now going to increase, which, by the way, will lead to some inflation. Don't, don't, don't think it won't. And that might not be a bad thing. Uh, but, um, but, you know, just on, on, the, on, the, on the subject you just raised, I want people to stop and think what the words pre-existing conditions mean. They don't mean, as has been, you know, bandied about, that people who are so sick that they'll consume an enormous amount of our health care dollars are now no. going to be able to get health care. Pre-existing conditions was an excuse that insurance companies used to trim anybody from the insurance pool where they couldn't maximize their return with no consequence whatsoever to the social implications. So somebody with any, you know, an exaggerated hangnail, and I'm not much, and there's a little hyperbole in there, but not much, could not have been much. knocked out as a pre-existing condition. So it was a mechanism that the, that the insurance companies used to maximize profits at the expense of good health care and health insurance. The result being that tons of people ended up in the insurance, in the emergency rooms, which is far more expensive to us than actually having them deferred now, and, 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 and this is how costs are going to come down, in the states where affordable health care or Obamacare has been adopted, you're going to see a drop in the cost of maintaining emergency rooms, which can therefore be passed along as a lowering of the cost in hospitals generally, and medicine, and the states in the South, where they refuse, 13 states have refused to adopt it, you will see their health care costs will continue to rise. Sooner or later, my guess is after the 2014 election, those states will come along because it, it makes no sense not to, and having your population be insured when the government federal government is picking up the cost 100% of it. It makes no sense why Texas or Alabama or Georgia or North Carolina or South Carolina or Kentucky wouldn't go along. It's just crazy. It makes no sense at all. It's just purely politics. But it's really important people focus. Pre-existing conditions weren't necessarily really life-threatening or seriously expensive conditions. In fact, if you want to know where the medical dollar gets spent in the United States of America today, it's in people my age. 
we spend 10 times as much per person on somebody who's 60 years of age and older than we do on anybody else in the population, meaning if you take somebody 25 years old. And the bulk of that expense is done in the last six months of life to 90 days. So we, we have to look at the fact that what's really hurting us financially in the healthcare system is the fact that we were legislating morality. We were trying to make people stay with jobs they didn't like. We were trying to keep people from getting in health care. We were trying to keep people from getting decent insurance. We were trying to shore up insurance company profits at the expense of the general population. And as that system starts to break apart now, and remember, we didn't do anything rational, ra- radical like single-payer system, which is what we should have done, meaning Medicare for all. We just, we just fine-tune some of the worst, most egregious problems of our system, like the idea of pre-existing conditions knocking you out, like the idea of having people have to pay egregious amounts or stay in a job they didn't like, like the threat of medical bankruptcy, meaning you go bankrupt because of a medical condition. All these things now start to go away, like driving too many people to our emergency rooms because they can't afford health care. All these things start to go away. Health care costs as a percentage of GDP start to drop. Those dollars can now get reinvested in better things. And before you know it, the economy starts growing. And as it starts growing, you can afford to do all the things you've been deferring because you thought we were in a zero-sum game when, in fact, we're not. We're in a two plus two equals five game. This is abundance thinking. This is abundance thinking, and it can work at a macro level. It does work at a macro level. And by the way, listeners, it works at a micro level. If you can change your thinking from a scarcity consciousness to an abundance consciousness, you'll be shocked at how it will change your material well-being. And I'd be delighted to answer more questions on that in future shows. Excellent, Ronaldo. Well, I want to make an announcement about an upcoming event we're having at the Academy. Um, Our listenership is spread out around the globe, but there's quite a few of you here in California. And the Academy's outlook is global, but we continue to act locally as well. Uh, For those of you in California or anyone who wants to come visit, we have some exciting events coming up in March. First, on Monday, March 3rd, the Academy and the United Nations Association of Santa Barbara are co-hosting a commemoration of the third anniversary of the beginning of the ongoing Fukushima nuclear disaster. Beginning at 5.30 p.m. at the University Club of Santa Barbara, the public program will welcome Sawada Goyosen, a Buddhist monk from Japan, who will undertake a memorial walk from Santa Barbara up the coast to the Diablo Canyon nuclear reactors which sit at the center of multiple active uh, fault lines and which are at risk for a Fukushima-style catastrophe. In addition, Dr. Jerry Brown, the director of the Academy's Safe Energy Project, will release the results of the Academy's groundbreaking report on the impact of the Diablo Canyon power plants on the health of people living nearby. Uh, These people include people in San Luis Obispo and uh, the surrounding counties. Also, later in March, the Academy uh, Academy Fellow and world-renowned author Deepak Chopra will visit the Santa Barbara community for a series of events supporting the Academy's work to shift the planetary energy system. For more information about these events, visit our website at worldbusiness.org. They're there on the homepage under upcoming events. Or email us at events at worldbusiness.org. Hey, Ronaldo, is there anything else you'd like to add about these events? Well... You know, I think, Matt, I'd love to talk about them for hours each. Uh, yeah. The idea, uh, first of all, on March 3rd, when the, the Buddhist monk starts his walk from, from Santa Barbara to San Luis Obispo, we're going to be releasing our study. We committed last December at a fundraiser. The first fundraiser we did in the history of the Academy, we said if, if we get enough money raised, we're going to commission a study. 
where we're literally going to look at cancer clusters by zip code so that we can know whether or not our analysis in the academy, which says that the radioactive plume from a nuclear reactor plant literally, literally creates cancer as you go into the downwind pattern of that plume, meaning that radioactive isotopes like strontium-90 literally, not figuratively, literally fall on your head and create cancer clusters, by the, by the, which, we, which you can determine by the distance you are from the, the nuclear power plant and, 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 and the actual zip code you live in. We're going to release the first study done in that kind on March 3rd as the monk starts his walk. Um, and what we did is we took the downwind plume and we overlaid it against zip codes for the Diablo Canyon power plant here in California, and we'll be releasing that study. It's a, it's a major, major event. Uh, I hope National News is smart enough to pick it up, but you can bet that the Academy will do its best to get the word out on how deadly nuclear power in normal operation is, let alone when something goes wrong like Fukushima. Yeah, and we'll be sending that study out to everyone on our email list, which you can sign up for at worldbusiness.org. Um, and, Ronaldo, the Deepak events are very exciting to me, and I'm sure we'll be talking about them more in our March radio show. But I just wanted to put another plug in. If you're interested in seeing Deepak Chopra in the Santa Barbara area, please come to our website and look for that event on our homepage. Actually, there's um, three events. There's going to be, let me just list what they are, too, Matt, just yeah, so people know. Sure. One of them is a private seminar with Deepak that's going to last about five hours, um, where he will be renounced. He'll be talking about the the groundbreaking work he has done uh, to basically extend human life uh, and the telomeres research, and how that research also indicates how we can reverse the effects of probably seventy percent of dementia cases. So it's that big. A, it's, it's that big that's amazing a, a issue, and uh, Deepak is not someone who's ever given to hyperbole. Uh, as some of you may know who listen to the show, I am president of the Chopra Foundation, so I'm intimately aware in what these studies are demonstrating and, and concluding. And these are done with, in cooperation with major academic institutions like Scripps, um, USF, and others uh, as we develop the scientific proof for what you can do to lengthen human life and the quality of life and, and reduce dementia. So that's one of the events. There's also going to be a, a dinner, and at that, that dinner we're going to be talking about the need for people to look at how to shift their consciousness as a way to literally save the human civilization. And that will be a lovely dinner at the Fest Parker. And then we're going to do a major event at the Arlington Theater, uh, which is a 2,000-seat venue in Santa Barbara, where Deepak is going to be joining with me to talk about the energy future for California, uh, the Academy's California Moonshot Project, and how a switch in energy can switch not only our economic outcomes, but can switch our consciousness. So three very different events, uh, all very exciting, and of course we're delighted that Deepak's going to be here with us for a couple of days to do those. So I re if you're anywhere close to coming, drop what you're doing and come on out to Santa Barbara. March, um, the dates I think are 27th and 27th 8th, is that right, Matt? Yeah, that's right, yeah. 27 and 28th. Excellent. Well, Ronaldo, you know, you touched on the California Moonshot project just now, and we're working with Deepak and others in that uh, formation of that plan. At the basis of that plan, though, is the concept of switching our planetary fuel system away from carbon fuels and nuclear fuel and towards renewable energy, which will be then transferred between production and use by, in a chemical form as hydrogen. Can you explain a little bit about what this 
simple but relatively revolutionary uh, change would do for the for the world and how it works. Yeah, and, and, and remember, folks, that hydrogen is so far more abundant than any other molecule in the universe, any other atom in the universe, that it, it represents 75% of every element in the universe is hydrogen, 75%. 25% is all the rest. So it's sort of like if you think about fish swimming in water, it's so obviously around you everywhere, you don't even notice it because it's the world you live in. So we live in, the, we live in a universe of hydrogen. And it's, it's bonded 18 ways from Sunday. It's, you know, water itself is the most important thing to sustain human life. is two parts oxygen, one part hydrogen, uh, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, H2O. Now, when you have this abundant material, which also is the simplest molecule, and has the simplest atomic structure, it's number one on the periodic table. It has a single electron, a single neutron, and a single proton. When you have something that simple, it's very easy to break hydrogen. In the case of the molecule of water, H2O, you can even break the molecule even simpler. It's easy to use the power of that hydrogen as an energy carrier. So if you've got a windmill, you can literally turn it, the energy it creates into hydrogen at the base of the windmill and power all of society from that hydrogen. If you have a geothermal plant, meaning uh, the geysers in California, the Puna Geothermal in Hawaii, and other geothermal resources around the globe, you could make electricity. And right at the base of that geothermal resource, with a little bit of water, you can turn it into hydrogen. You can take photovoltaics, creates electricity, turn it into hydrogen. And once you've got the hydrogen, not only can you power your electrical system, and by the way, you can do it without having a grid, because you can put a fuel cell, a hydrogen fuel cell, in every location where there's a substation, and you won't even need the wires attaching you to big power plants, which means you won't be subject to the vicissitudes of climate change because these long-distance wires that are carrying the energy that snap, cause forest fires, and are tough to protect from terrorists, all that goes away. And now, and by the way, you save over 40% of the energy that used to go down those lines, which was lost through friction. So you get, it. you get this huge benefit when you turn to hydrogen. But the best part is, since hydrogen is so abundant and you can get it from 100% renewable resources, you cease emitting carbon instantly when you start using hydrogen from renewable resources. And when you, when you burn hydrogen, the only byproduct is water vapor. So hydrogen combusted turns into water. Okay? It's that simple. When you use it in a fuel cell, it also can create water vapor. It can create heat but it doesn't create any toxic element. No, no coal, no, no carbon dioxide, no nitrous oxides, none of that stuff. And unlike oil and fossil fuels, which get more expensive every year because they're based on scarcity, how much have you got left, what's it cost to dig it up, the places we go to get oil now are far more expensive, you know, 17,000 feet below the sea, uh, versus uh, when you, they used to put a hole in Pennsylvania in 1875 and you know, put, hit the ground with a hammer and oil would gush out. Okay, well, as it gets more expensive to get oil, as it gets more expensive to get coal, and as you start to charge these two uh, fossil fuels for the damage they're doing to the atmosphere, which I'm hoping a carbon tax will come, but even if it doesn't, the cost of every fossil fuel grows over time. It gets more expensive because of scarcity. The reverse is true with hydrogen. The more you make, the longer you make it, the cheaper it gets in relative terms. So all of a sudden, energy, instead of being a constraint 
to human economic growth becomes a support to human economic growth. This is how we're going to revolutionize the global economy. Yeah. And with that cheaper energy, it's how we're going to be able to pay to suck the carbon dioxide out of the air that's literally baking the planet, that's creating the polar vortex, the drought in California, and all the weather weirdness you heard about. So, Bernard, let me pause there and just uh, see if I'm following correctly. So what you're saying is that much like the process right now for getting oil out of the ground where a deep-sea well has to stick a tube down and suck it out of the, uh, the ocean floor or drill into the ocean floor and suck it out, and then that oil comes up and is transported by barge and then eventually refined and then transported again to be used in our car, uh, hydrogen can do the same thing except that Essentially, we make the hydrogen from a renewable resource like wind or geothermal and then transport it to where we're going to use it and use it in a car just like we would oil or gas. Is that right? Yeah. In fact, um, um, we've designed at the Academy a boat, literally a large yacht, that will never, ever again use any fuel other than seawater using hydrogen technology. Think about that. No one's been able to do that since the Phoenicians first sailed with cargo ships 3,000 years ago. So we're talking about revolutionary changes because of hydrogen. And we're talking about being able to capture that hydrogen literally one ocean-going vessel at a time. It's, it's astounding. Uh, we're also talking about being able to create it in virtually every geographic area. So... In a place like the Midwest, where they have tremendous amount of wind, their hydrogen will come from wind. In a place like California, it'll come from beneath the ground in the form of geothermal heat. I believe the technology one day uh, will be here, because I think it's here now. We just have to deploy it, called Ocean Thermal Energy Conversion, or OTEC, which uses the temperature differential between the seawater temperature at the top of the ocean and seawater temperature three miles below the surface of the water. With the, that temperature differential is enough to create electricity cheaper than using fossil fuel. So when you, when, when you get all these things working, you, 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 it, it's sort of like it's hard to believe in the world of 1750, before the Industrial Revolution, what the world could look like in 1950. How would somebody have explained to you a jet airplane? How would somebody have explained to you large ocean-going vessels that carry 5,000 people? How would anybody have explained to you the ability to get from – Europe to America in um, five hours, six hours. How would anybody, there was no concept. How would anybody explain to you how you could produce the amount of food we produced in 1950 versus 1750? So none of these things were even remotely conceivable unless you were a visionary. And, and, and very few of those have ever existed. I mean, probably one of the best was Jules Verne because he was a practical, he called what he did science fiction, but it turned out it was more science than fiction. And by the way, the submarine Nautilus, in Jules Verne's original work, Mysterious Island, that Nautilus submarine, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, that submarine was powered by hydrogen. It was not powered by nuclear. So he actually saw the hydrogen future, didn't know that's what he was seeing. But he was able to put all the pieces together. Now, and, and that's not what it was in 1750, obviously, that was the 1800s. But you can't describe to somebody in a drafty castle in the year 1300, somewhere in Europe, what the Renaissance is going to look like 150 years later. You can't do it. In fact, you can't describe it to them in the year 1350, less than 100 years later. You can't describe it to them in the year 1400, less than 50 years away. Because it's a shift of realities. And we are now in a situation where we're, 
we don't have any choice but to shift our reality. It, it, the, the options have been taken away from us by climate change. So now we're going to have to shift. So it's going to be change or die. And I believe many of us will choose to change. And as we do, we're going to unlock the potential of hydrogen as the increasingly less and less expensive form of energy, which makes more and more things possible, including desalinization so we can get enough water, particularly here in the West. It's going to permit situations to happen so that we can build the infrastructure we need to deal with climate change. You're not going to be able to put stucco houses in the middle of Kansas anymore. You're not going to be able to put frame houses there if that's where the winds go through at 200 miles an hour. So we have to really rethink how we're going to build, how we're going to transport ourselves. And that can't be with more carbon. It's got to be with no carbon, and we've got to have energy cheap enough to pull the carbon we already put in the air and suck it back out and restabilize the planetary temperature. That's what we have to do on a global scale. Massive so, undertaking. Let me go back, because I think that's an important point, is that what you said before about the difference between scarcity and abundance of energy, with the limited fossil fuels, uh, and they're, they're more expensive every day as we use them up, uh, that we can't, we'll never have enough energy to do desalinization on a wide scale or do the carbon uh, reduction out of the, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. Instead, with renewable energies that get cheaper the more you use them, as we've seen with solar and others in the past, we literally will be creating an abundance uh, environment where energy will be getting cheaper as we use more of it. That's right. And not only will the energy be cheaper, all of the subsystems that rely on that energy. So if you build one um, desalinization plant, it costs a certain amount. You build 50 like they have in the Middle East, it gets cheaper. You build 1,000, it gets cheaper still. You build one windmill or two or 10 or 1,000 to, to create energy or electricity for hydrogen, it has one price. You do, do a million, it's much cheaper. We've seen that happen with photovoltaic cells, where the cost of a photovoltaic cell has dropped to where it's one-tenth what it was just five years ago, seven years ago. Now, that's, that, that drop in cost, and by the way, we've seen it happen. There's a very famous thing in technology called Moore's Law. And what yeah. Moore's Law states, and it's been true now for 30 years, every 18 months technology doubles its power. We're ready now to see the same Moore's Law take effect in energy that we've been doing in technology. And what's holding it back is the economic power of the fossil fuel companies. You know, I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's an embarrassment beyond belief, Matt, that this country has cut its carbon footprint for what it does domestically. And one of the things it's done is it's shipped more oil and coal offshore so it can get burned somewhere else than ever before. We're, yeah. This year, 20, 2014, looks like it's going to be the highest year of coal exports in the history of the country. 2013 was before that. Now... That's nuts, because if you dig up the coal and you send it to China and they burn it, it still goes in the same air that you breathe. It's just nuts. What keeps this crazy system going? It's very simple. It's kept going by power, raw economic power. If you want to know whether or not the rules of the game are being rigged, look at and see if oil companies are making literally egregious profits every quarter. They are. You can't do that running a legitimate business. You can only do that. If you're running a business where you can pay the politicians to protect and, 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 and give you permission to dump your trash, i.e. CO2 and nitrous oxides, in the air and not have to pay for it. So if, if I start any business in America, I have to pay to haul my trash away. It's a cost of my doing business. The oil companies and the coal companies and the natural gas companies 
are the only companies that are allowed to put their trash, their waste, in our air and not pay to pull it out. They're not, they're not taking care of their waste. And that gives them an economic advantage. And with that economic advantage, they put literally armies of lawyers and armies of lobbyists. They, they control legislation not only at the federal level but at the state level. They, they reach right down to the city and county levels. And with that economic power, they keep a system in place that's killing the rest of us for their own greed. And it's time we say, not anymore. I'm, I, not anymore. We've we just got to stand up and create an energy system that liberates human society and takes us to the next level, rather than being baked in an oven of our own creation because we're giving egregious profits to these companies, which literally, in my humble opinion, an energy company today that isn't leading the switch to alternative energy away from fossil fuels is literally a renegade outlaw company. They literally are, they, they stand opposed to the best interests of society for their own greedy ends. That makes them a renegade. So as I said in the intro to this segment, the Academy is working on a plan to change consciousness and change the actual practices of the state of California called the California Moonshot Plan. Uh, where we will introduce the idea of changing to away from all fossil and all nuclear power in the state to 100% renewable energy with hydrogen as a main component of moving that energy around to where it's needed. Um, and by extension, as we make that change in California, we hope and plan to see that change throughout the country and then throughout the world. And we will be doing subsequent programs on this plan as, as we continue to develop it and introduce it. Um, and as well, if you, some of the information Ronaldo and I covered is available in an ebook that's coming out this month from the Academy, which uh, watch your inboxes and make sure you're on our, on our email list, and we, you will be able to read that ebook uh, on your Kindle or, or your various ebook readers. Uh, Ronaldo, I want to quickly fit in our lightning round. Uh, what's your outlook for oil prices, gold, stocks oh. and bonds, and real estate? Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I just want to put one comment about the California Moonshot Project. I want people to know that we're not just going to say that's what we think should happen. All fossil fuels, all nuclear gone within 10 years or less at no additional cost to the ratepayers. We can do this with existing resources, folks. But in addition, we are going to put forward a minimum of 15 witnesses before the California Public Utilities Commission with a complete plan for a precisely step-by-step -step approach of how to convert the state of California off those fossil fuels and nuclear within 10 years or less. Now, that, that's going to happen this year in a series of hearings we've been asked to be involved in by the commission called the Long-Term Power Procurement Hearings. So when, when, when Matt says we're going to introduce the idea, he doesn't mean we're just going to like write a two-paragraph paper. We're going to literally provi provide the blueprints for how you can convert the 38 million people in California off of fossil and nuclear fuel and end up better off for it and launch a huge economic wave of activity. So I just want to underscore that, and please do look for the – um, the alert on the, um, the first hydrogen book that we're going to be writing. It's an e-book, and it'll be the first of a series. I know we're out of time, so I'm going to do this quick. I want to start today. I've, I've been talking for months now about dividend stocks, and I've been giving people examples of dividend stocks and why I like the – in a low inflation environment like we have right now, I really love dividend stocks. Um, 3M just bounced their stock, their dividend again. They, they've been doing this consistently for 90 years. It's 9-0. It's unbelievable. They're at a 3.3% yield right now. You, you can own 3M and get 3.3% for your money in dividends. Folks, that's the best thing you can do with your money right now. And don't let anybody kid you that dividend stocks don't perform as well as other stocks. 
because by not gambling, in other words, by buying an income stream, which is a much more practical thing for most people to do and forgetting about the stock mostly. Yeah, in fact, if you buy dividend stocks and you listen to the show, we'll, we'll tell you when you have to sell. And, you're gonna, and if you just, just follow that advice, you're going to be fine. You're literally going to be fine. And when you're going to do it, you're, you're going to end up finding yourself that you have a, uh, a yield, which will be anywhere from 25 to 5%. And that yield will be, I believe, increased by the capital gains you'll get from having done something so smart as to own a stock that grows in value. So that's my, my continuing. And by the way, if you, uh, I can make a case that Apple stock right now is going to be a great dividend yield at 2.2%, and I think it's going to grow because of the amount of cash they generate. Um, there are other stocks, uh, Johnson & Johnson, great dividend stock. I could give you other ones. The point is, there's lots of good stocks out there. Now, you'll see on some lists people will put Exxon and some other oil companies. I disagree with that for two reasons. One, I don't believe you have to make money by, by profiting from planet destruction. So if, if the only way to make a buck is to destroy the planet, my, my, my vote is don't make a buck. But, but the other reason is I believe that oil company stocks are at their high right now. Ten years today, people will look back and say, can you believe how long we hung on to stocks and they were dropping? And we kept hearing that they were going to make a comeback, and they didn't. Oil stocks are going to be dropping. Coal stocks are going to be dropping in the future. So get out of fossil fuels, get into the things that make sense, and get a great dividend at the same time. The only thing I'll tell you also real quickly on the lightning round, uh, the price of oil is trying desperately because Russia's trying to push it higher. Saudis are trying to push it higher. They can't succeed. It's not going to happen. Too many factors that are keeping the price of oil down. And right now, the price of oil in Texas is so much lower than it is in the North Sea that you're going to see continuing downward pressure on global oil prices every year from here on out. Um, we could talk about stocks, bonds, and real estate, but I think we're sort of out of time. I, let's just pick up here next time, and maybe we can put the lightning round in a little earlier in the show, and we could talk a little more about it. And if people have specific questions about REITs, um, uh, mutual funds, uh, anything of that sort, please just send us a note, uh, info at worldbusiness.org, and we'll take it and we'll talk about it on the show. Excellent. The World Business Academy produces this monthly podcast as a public service to share our analysis with the public. Uh, we do this because trustworthy, no-strings-attached financial information is almost impossible to come by these days. Uh, all we ask uh, of our listeners is that you share the link to this show with your networks and post it to Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Uh, please do your help. Uh, your, your part to help us spread the word. And on behalf of the World Business Academy, thank you for listening. We'll be back next month with another episode of New Business Paradigms. Thanks, Ronaldo. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And please tell your friends that's the one thing you can do that will really help.